0: Why do I read? Why do I have conversations?
1: Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention?
0: Why do I pay attention? Because I want
2: to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone.
1: But mostly,
3: mostly,
4: mostly Mostly because, because I want to find out out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. (laughs) Because I want you to tell Tell me me something something I I don't don't know. know. Did you know, for instance, that even a dinosaur can get kicked out of an exclusive club, can be reduced to a wannabe? Consider the brontosaurus, you know, the friendly-looking vegetarian with a really long neck. Here's Mark Norell, chairman of the paleontology department at the American Museum of Natural History.
5: Everybody who's familiar with any dinosaurs has heard the name brontosaurus. I mean, it's in the Flintstones, it's the subject of lots of different, both popular culture as well as in dinosaur museums. But as with many things, it's much more complex than that. And the story goes is that in the 1870s, the famous Yale paleontologist, O.C. Marsh, collected a not very complete specimen of an animal in Wyoming, and he named it Apatosaurus. You know, these were the days when everybody was competing with each other, both to put big dinosaur specimens in museums, as well as who could name the most animals. A few years later, he collected another specimen from an adjacent area. And that he named Brontosaurus.
4: By the 1930s, scientists had discovered many more dinosaur bones. They looked at all of the available
5: specimens and made a very, very strong argument that Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus were the same
4: thing. The poor Brontosaurus was essentially demoted. It had lost its status, its very identity. This lasted for decades, but then, a few years ago... A team of paleontologists found some new dinosaur
5: bones. And their analysis suggests that, you know, Brontosaurus can be differentiated from Apatosaurus, and maybe Brontosaurus is a valid name.
4: Welcome back to the dinosaur kingdom, oh noble Brontosaurus, and welcome all of you to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. The theme of tonight's show, Wannabes. Something I don't know is live journalism wrapped in a game show, and tonight we're coming to you from Washington, D.C., where just about everyone has a little bit of wannabe in them. We've got a fantastic panel tonight, so would you please welcome undercover economist Tim Harford, the Librarian of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden, and the comedian Ramin Mostafavi. Excellent. Hello, people. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Yes. Tim Harford, we'll start with you. What do we know so far? We know that you are an economist by training who's now written seven books, including The Undercover Economist and your latest, Messy. We know you live in Oxford, England, so thanks for crossing crossing the ocean for our little show. Pleasure. We know that after writing your book, Adapt, you made a list of 12 new things you wanted to try, including stand-up comedy... Tai Chi, and bread baking, which shows that you've got your own wannabe streak, plainly. So, Tim Harford, welcome, and please tell us something we don't know about
6: you. Well, I have been on a game show before. It was called Blockbusters. I mean, I won, obviously, but I don't want to (laughs) blow my own trumpet. The interesting thing about Blockbusters, there are two things. One, so it's based on a game called Hex, and one of the inventors of Hex uh, won a Nobel Memorial Prize in economics, the mathematician John Nash, he of a beautiful mind. The other thing about blockbusters, which is even more exciting, is that the host of the show in the UK was the original James Bond. Now you're thinking Sean Connery, but no, his name was Bob Holness, and he played James Bond in a radio adaptation, I think, of Casino Royale. It's the first actor to play James Bond.
4: Phenomenal. Wow. My favourite part of that story was, which I won, of course... Well, Tim Harford, we're so happy to have you here tonight. Our next panelist tonight, Dr. Carla Hayden. Let's see what we know about you. Uh In 2016, you were sworn in as the 14th Librarian of Congress, the first female, the first African-American, and only the third actual librarian to hold the post. (laughs) We know that your library, I hope you don't mind if I call it your library, uh, has a a collection of 162 million items, and that you plan to digitize at least half of them during your tenure. We know you grew up as a passionate reader, that your parents were both music educators, and that you, like them, have perfect pitch. We also know you're a hardcore Anglophile, so Tim Harford, good news for you there. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Carla Hayden, tell us something we don't know about you, please.
7: Well, it was pretty obvious early on that I wasn't going to follow in my parents' footsteps, even though I have perfect pitch. But I wanted to be a shortstop. For which team? The St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah. Because I used to do that, thank you, Springfield, all that. Well, that didn't seem to work out. And I'm still working on one thing that I've never been able to do, is to wink. And this is as far as I can <laughs> So I'm so, still working on that. Yeah, so that, that does work well on radio,
4: um, uh, I have to say. <laughs> we
7: thought so. Um,
4: our final panelist tonight, Ramin Mostafavi, we know that you, sir, perform and produce stand-up comedy, that you're a former cast member of Sheer Madness at the Kennedy Center, a show I believe that predates the Brontosaurus, it actually. It does, yeah. We also know that Amy Schumer has a crush on you. Mm. But, but then there's a footnote. Yeah. Which says, this is a rumor that Ramin would like to spread. <laughs> uh, we know that you were born in Iran to an Iranian dad, an American mom. Yep. Um, we also know that you have a side career building museum exhibits. True. So Ramin Mostafavi, tell us something we don't know about you.
8: Yes, something you don't know is uh, when I was 22 years old, I, uh, I had a hair transplant. And if you're listening at home, my hair looks amazing. Uh, LAUGHTER It was, uh, it was easily one of the biggest mistakes in my life, and I'm humiliated uh, about it to this moment. But, uh, yeah, so well, that, that was it. I,
4: I think you re- you look fantastic with what we'll call uh, minimalism. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
8: It's a, it's a minimalist comb-over, yeah. yeah. Ramin,
4: we're very, very happy to have you here, along with uh, Dr. Hayden and Tim Harford. Um, we are just about ready to play Tell Me Something, I don't know. As you know... Our audience guests will come on stage and try to wow us with their IDKs or I don't knows. You are free to ask them anything you want. Ultimately, you'll pick a winner based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Now, to make sure that everyone's on the up and up tonight, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, the brilliant and lovely Femi OK? Femi is an award-winning journalist who's worked for the BBC, CNN, NPR, and many more. She was born in London to parents who'd immigrated from Nigeria, and she became, at the age of 14, a junior reporter for Britain's first talk radio station. She has since reported from all over the world and has been in the States for 18 years. So, Femi, I'm curious, what was it like fitting into the U.S. when you moved? Did did you have a kind of wannabe
9: moment? There was this one time, Stephen when I was in Atlanta, and I visited a very famous drive-through known as the Varsity, and the lady serving me nudged her co-worker and said, ''What language is she speaking?'' (laughs) And then somebody at the back of the kitchen went, ''Whoa, it's a Black Mary Poppins!'' (laughs)
4: Ah, Femi, okay, thank you so much for being here. It is now time to play. Tonight's theme, you'll remember, is wannabes, people, places, or things that haven't quite made it to where they want to be. So would you please welcome now our first contestant, Jen Golbeck.
0: Hey, Jen, what do you do? I'm a computer scientist and a professor of information studies at the University of Maryland. All right, Jen, uh, I'm ready.
4: So are our panelists, Tim Harford, Carla Hayden, and Ramin Mostafavi. So what do you
0: know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? So there's this huge Russian botnet on Twitter. Bots are, these are accounts that are posted by computer programs. They tweet, they follow each other, they look pretty normal, but they're not people. And they look like any other Twitter account, but there's one simple observation you can make that will unmask them as bots. What is it?
6: Hmm. So is it something to do with the, the timing of their responses? Like... So
0: That's a good possibility. I actually looked into that, and it seems fairly randomized, so it looks kind of like any other person.
8: Hmm. The, the profile pic—it's a—it's a human and not like a hard drive or something like that. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it looks like they actually steal people's Instagram selfies. Uh-huh. Um, they're these sort of attractive sepia-toned people on pretty much all the accounts. Right, right, right.
7: They're too attractive. Mm.
0: That's interesting.
4: <laughs> Dr. I'm going to run that her-
0: experiment later. Yeah.
4: And, Dr. Hayden, by too attractive, do you mean potentially unclothed to some degree? Oh, no. Well, that's not what you were getting at. No.
7: I'm a librarian.
4: Jen, can I ask you seriously-ish? You said that you were looking for this botnet, meaning you knew something was going on. Talk a little bit more about your impetus there.
0: Yeah, so I ran into this handful of accounts, and I was like, what are these? They look so weird. And so I started following them out and their friends and so on, and I'm just building a list uh, to see how big it actually is.
4: Okay, and that led you then to the identifying trait, or no?
0: The identifying trait led me to the botnet.
4: Ah, ah, so we
0: still don't Uh know. I don't think we're going to guess it, are we? You're not going to guess it. No, we're not.
4: (laughs) Jen, why don't you tell us what the identifying trait is for the Russian botnets?
0: So if you look at your friends on Facebook or Twitter and how many friends they have, about 30% of them will have friend counts that start with a 1 and only about 5% of them will have friend counts that start with a nine. This is a thing called Benford's Law, and it says that ones are way more common as the first digit in natural systems, and it goes down for each digit from there. So you can try this yourself, like look at all the numbers on your tax returns, or in a magazine, or the surface area of all the lakes on the planet, and it works, I proved that it works on social media. And so when I was studying it on Twitter, I found this handful of accounts that totally violated the rule. They followed people, they looked normal, but their first digit pattern was completely unnatural. And then I realized, oh, they're all Russian, they're all looking like these bots, and even though they try to look normal, so Twitter doesn't catch them and they can keep posting porn and fake bags and pirated movies, this one little observation is something that fraudsters often slip up on and they missed it to.
4: But now, helpfully, you've told them how to not slip up in the future? If it's worth knowing. Now, Tim Harford, as an economist, Benford's Law, you're familiar with? I, and I been... am.
6: I did not uh, anticipate it working in social media, but Benford's Law has been used to uncover accounting fraud, and uh, I believe the accounts of the Greek government uh, were not... Benford compliant, if I recall correctly. And the idea is if you're trying to fake something, right, you tend to use
4: numbers that are rarer than they would occur naturally? That's, that's... Well, You
0: kind of go like, oh, I'm faking my tax return. I better yeah. put some numbers that start with a two and with a five in there so it looks legit. But actually, if you just do a lot of ones, it's, it's going to pass muster. <laughs> also useful advice, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> Uh, before we
4: finish up with Jen, let's check in with our fact-checker, Femi Okay.
9: Not all bots are bad. I have a couple of for you to take away. Earthquake Robot or Earthquake Bot, it is a bot that tweets out every earthquake in the world from a 5.0 on the Richter scale and higher. And this one, at two headlines, mashes up two headlines. And it comes from Google News, so real headlines but mashed up. This one was dumb by a bot. Kellyanne Conway finally adds a dislike button, dash, sort of.
4: Femi, thank you, and Jen Goldbeck, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something, I Don't Know, great job. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Vince Houghton. All right, Vince, why don't you tell us uh, who you are, what do you do?
10: I'm the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum here in Washington, and the host of the museum's podcast, SpyCast. Uh, Spies, I guess, are in some ways the ultimate wannabes, so Vince, what do you you (laughs) have for us tonight? My question is, if you wanted to be a British spy, but they wouldn't have you, how would you fake your way in? I couldn't possibly reveal my secrets. (laughs) I,
6: I, I know the answer to the reverse question. Like, if they want you to be a spy, I know how to get yourself fired, because my wife managed to do this. So, so she speaks Chinese and Japanese, and she studied that at university. When she graduated, she got this mysterious letter inviting her to you know, come along, and it, was, it seemed to be from the Secret Service. She uh, So she didn't read to the end of the letter, which said do not discuss the contents of this letter with anybody. Uh, so anyway, she just, she calls her mom and she's telling her friends. And then, and then mysteriously, the job offer was, was withdrawn very, very quickly.
4: Uh, so the question, so how do you fake your way in? Does it involve... Like, After they
7: don't want you? Yeah. Well, if yeah. they, they
8: just don't think you're valuable.
7: But then yeah. you're going to try anyway? Yeah. Yeah.
8: You're saying that there is a method with which that has been proven where people have been rejected that then they're like, no, I still want to be a spy, and then they figure out a way that you know, and it's not like Rowan Atkinson. Like yeah, no, this Bean is one Zang. person that
10: was rejected three times by British intelligence. Oh, so this
4: is not, a, this is not standard operating procedure.
10: No no, 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 no. This is a story I'm not giving you a, this is a... I'm a historian, so I'm giving you a historical event. So,
6: so yeah. if, you, if you manage to... Uh, create a fake identity as someone else and get an apply under the fake identity. And if you were able to get sufficiently far, that would
10: demonstrate certain spycraft. You're somewhat on the right track. It's actually how do you make yourself more valuable to the British? In this case, this is a World War II story. Oh. Uh, would it involve going to spy for somebody else first, or at least pretending to spy for somebody oh. else first? So you have to be a double agent of sorts. You have well, to, uh, yes. So technically, you, have, you would to be, have to pretend at least
8: to be. You have to be agent. a complete yeah. of piece of shit. Well, no, <laughs>
10: so it depends on whose side you're thinking about in World War II here. It's, if you're mean to the Nazis, most people aren't too uh, worried about that. So, But if you, went, if you went to some third country, for example, Spain,
6: so, and you were pretending to have some kind of spy ring in Spain,
10: would that... Serve? So if you were a Spaniard, perhaps, and you hated the fascists, and you wanted to hurt Germany as much as you possibly could during World War II... You reached out to the British, but they said, you're a random Spaniard, you have no value to us. One of the ways to become valuable, perhaps, would be to at least pretend to spy for the Germans. All right, Vince, it sounds like we're getting closer to the right answer. Tell, Tell us the story of this person. So a man named Juan Garcia, Juan Pujol Garcia is his full name, and he was a Spaniard, and he hated the fascists because he had spent a lot of time in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. He wanted to do everything he could to mess with the Nazis. So he reached out to the British They rejected him, reached out again, rejected him a third time, they said no. He wasn't going to give up. He really wanted to spy for the British. So now he reached out to the Germans, not to provide them with any information, but essentially he faked that he was a spy inside Britain. Never went to Britain, but using travel guides and train schedules and journals and things he had pulled out from the library on Britain, he was able to give fake reports to the Germans about what was happening inside Britain. He created 25 fake assets on the ground, spies that he was running, created fake identities, actually wrote in different handwriting the reports for each of these identities, to the point where the Germans brought him on as one of their top spies. Really? Then he went back to the British and said, now you want me, right? Because I've got the Germans... Eating out of my hands, and the British finally realized this was somebody they wanted to work with. So the Germans were now fed disinformation for the rest of the war because they thought Juan Pujol Garcia was their spy. To the point he was such a good actor that the British codenamed him Agent Garbo because Greta Garbo at the time was the greatest actress in the world. Now, here's the kicker he was so good at his job that he spread disinformation about the D-Day landings in Normandy. And he said to the Germans that the D-Day invasion wasn't going to take place at Normandy. It's actually going to take place at a place called Paz de Calais, which is actually the shortest distance across the English Channel. He was so effective in this information that up to two weeks after the D-Day invasion, Hitler refused to send reinforcements to Normandy because he thought the Normandy, the D-Day invasion was just a distraction, a diversion, and the real invasion was going to take place at the Paz de Calais. Amazing. Um, So let me, one final thing I think that really wraps this up. The Germans never knew he was a double agent. So he's the only person in history to receive the top award for spying from the Germans and the British at the end of World War II.
4: Dr. Hayden, your library is full of tales, fantastic and
7: otherwise. World War I, World War II. Yeah. This is something. It's
10: an extraordinary story. It was one of the things that we didn't know a lot about it because after the war he was worried that the remaining Nazis would hunt him down so he went into hiding, moved to South America and then finally in the 1980s he was unearthed and the story came out and books were written about it. Uh,
4: So Femi, Juan Pujol Garcia, a spy so nice he did it twice. What more can you tell us about him?
9: Even double agents have relationship trouble. His wife Araceli, when they were moved by MI5 to live in the suburbs of London, got very bored. She was homesick and she wanted to go and see her mum. She was not allowed to go back to Spain to see her mum. And she got furious and she said, I am going to the Spanish embassy and I'm going to tell them that you are a double agent. Now, Agent Garbo, being a really good double agent, worked out a plan he told MI5 to detain him and take him away to a camp to scare his wife. <laughs> the next day, MI5 turn up and detain Agent Garbo. She is beside herself. MI5 pick her up, take her to her husband, who is he's so good at faking. He's in camp outfit, He's unshaven, looking like he's been beaten to a pulp. And MI5 tell her, if you ever threaten your husband again, we are going to lock you up and throw away the key. She never asked to go and see her mom again.
4: <laughs> that is such a fascinating story. Vince Houghton, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Rebecca Ratner. Greetings, Rebecca.
3: What's your story? I am a social psychologist, and I'm a professor at the University of Maryland. Go Terps! And I teach in the business school.
4: All right, we are looking for wannabes tonight. What do you got?
3: Yeah, so in some of my previous research, I found that people are reluctant to do leisure activities alone, like going to the movies or going to a museum, um, because they're afraid that other people will think that they don't have friends. And so this fear of being evaluated negatively by others leads people not to engage in those activities at all if they lack an activity partner. Uh, and so the question is, how do people perceive someone who does these kinds of activities alone?
8: You mean just, just as an outsider, if we
6: see someone uh, going That's to right. a movie by themselves? That's right. How if how you were
3: we at a it? movie and you saw someone come in alone...
6: Yeah. I remember. Having to break through this barrier um, when I was maybe 20 years old, I wanted to go and see the Harvey Cattell movie Smoke. So I called a friend, and he wasn't free. And I called another friend, and he wasn't free. And I only had two friends. So, <laughs> and then I was like, well, hang on. I could just go and see the movie by great. myself. And I did. And it was great. And, of course... You're in a cinema, it's dark, no one cares. No one's looking at you, they're looking at the screen. Later, the question is, how right? do we judge them?
3: Yeah, so I think it's just... so yeah. maybe even a better example might be, um, imagine that you're at a museum exhibit, and you see someone walking around, so it's really clear that they're alone. What do you think of that person when you see them there, unaccompanied by anybody else?
7: Museums are a little different, in terms of seeing people alone yeah. and doing that.
3: What did you mean? What, what would you think if you saw someone alone at a museum?
7: I wouldn't even notice in a way. Mm. In museum exhibits, you're looking Mm. at the things. I think you're onto
6: something, because I dimly remember that there is a a psychological effect called the spotlight effect, which is that people feel they are in the spotlight, that other people are looking at them and noticing them, So my guess would be that actually people don't evaluate people who do things alone. They don't even notice people Mm doing things alone.
3: Yeah. So I think the spotlight effect—that's exactly right. They're not even noticing that person. Part of what we're interested in is what happens when you do notice that person. What is it that you think of that person?
6: I would construct this rich inner life for them about (laughs) like they are. they're, They're clearly just full of noble romantic thoughts.
3: So it's, it's interesting what you're describing about concocting this sort of rich inner life for this person because what we find is that when people think about going to do activities alone, really what they're thinking about is that other people are gonna look at them and judge them for not having friends. It's as though that's the one thing that other people will be thinking about us if they see us. And yet what we find is that what observers do is they create these stories like this person is working on a PhD or, you know, they have this sort of rich inner life. um, Because when you see them there alone, you know they must be interested in the exhibit, whereas if you see the person there with a friend at the museum, maybe the person's there just to socialize with a friend. People do think that a person who goes alone has fewer friends. Um, (laughs) But... But people also view that solo person as more um, interested in the world, more curious. And so overall, there are these really positive um, evaluations of someone who does things alone. We find also that people are more interested in initiating conversation with someone who is solo than with a friend.
8: So they may be the stronger, the more confident that would be out alone.
3: Yeah, yeah. Interesting.
4: Can you tell us, how how is the research done that allows you to reach the conclusion? (laughs)
8: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like, let's say you're at the recording of a podcast by yourself, and you want to meet somebody at a synagogue, for example, let's say.
3: The way we do the studies where we look at people's actual perceptions of someone who does activities alone is we describe scenarios. So, you know, imagine that you were going to go on a Thursday night to see a movie. Um, How do you think other people would view you? And then we tell other people, Mm. imagine you see this person um, at a movie. You know, alone. So interesting.
4: Although that could be a little bit that we are harder on ourselves than others.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that we find that I think argues against that sort of account is that if we get people first to think about how they would evaluate other people if they were to do this activity alone and then we ask them how interested are you in going and doing an activity like this alone people say they're more interested in doing it themselves if they have just considered it from the perspective of someone you know looking looking at them so if they are harder on themselves than on others that you know taking that perspective of thinking about how they would view others uh, seems enough to get them to to try to break out and try something new hmm.
4: So interesting. Femi, okay, Rebecca Ratner has been telling us that people think that going solo in public has a negative connotation, but in fact, it's perceived as mostly positive. Yeah, what what more can you add to that, Femi?
9: It feels like a really appropriate time to tell you about the marriage practice of sologamy, the practice of marrying yourself to yourself. (laughs) Is this a thing? It's a thing. Now, I have to tell you, it is not legal anywhere in the world. The upside of that is you're not breaking the law. Now, critics say that this is highly narcissistic.
6: Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, Femi, if you, if you yes. marry yourself and then you want to marry someone else, you have to get a divorce with yourself first. <laughs> well, yeah.
9: there's no paperwork. There's that, you just yeah. say, I divorce me, and you're done. <laughs> but, but, but how is infidelity
8: dealt with? <laughs> Femi, okay, thank you. And thank you, Rebecca
4: Ratner, for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. It's time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants and we make our panelists tell us something we don't know. And if you'd like to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to come see the show taped live, we will be in Minneapolis on April 26th and 27th, in Philadelphia, on May 8th and 9th, in Terrytown, New York on June 3rd, and in New York City for a bunch of dates in June. To find out more and to buy tickets, go to TMSIDK.com. You can find us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight, Tim Harford, Dr. Carla Hayden, and Ramin Mostafabi. Our fact checker is Femi Oke. And tonight's theme, you'll recall, is wannabes. So to that end, earlier tonight, we asked our live audience the following question. What exclusive group or club would you like to belong to and why? Panelists, I'd love each of you to... Read a reply, Tim Harford. Why don't you go first?
6: Well, seven different people in this room wrote down the Mile High Club. Seven of you.
4: Very good. Okay, Yep. Dr.
6: Carla Hayden
7: wow. from
4: the Library of Congress to the hey. uh, stage of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Who do you have there?
7: Justice League of America. Wonder what my superpower would be and my costume. Maroon spandex, one would hope. Uh, Ramin,
8: do you have one there? Uh, yeah, uh, Mensa. Because then I would have proof that I'm smarter than my significant other. Uh. <laughs> and that my way to load the dishwasher is superior to his method.
4: <laughs> Alright, let's get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Anita Kozart.
2: Hi, Anita. Tell us about yourself. So, um, I've lived in DC for about 13 years. I live in Northeast DC. And I'm an urban planner, urban policy advocate, and generally all about equity and civil rights. The floor is yours. What do you have for us tonight, Anita? So, every state pays uh, federal taxes, and also the District of Columbia pays federal taxes. The, the question for you is, how much per year does the district pay in federal taxes, and how does that compare with the other 50 states?
6: Mm. Wow. Is, is you your a- T-shirt a clue? Yeah. And could you tell us what's, yes, what's on the T-shirt? It is.
2: So my T-shirt reads, I am essential and so is statehood. So my question has to do something with that. I have no uh, idea. $5? $6? No. I have no
6: idea. No idea. S- so, yeah, you'd you think the know. economist would know. Right. Wouldn't you? Yeah, but he's a British economist, remember? Ah. <laughs> I'm guessing that it's uh, surprisingly and unjustly large.
1: <laughs>
6: <laughs> that is such a lame guess.
8: Because, oh, because obviously that's what's going to happen. Oh. We're going to have this, aha, we're going to feel terrible about ourselves. And, and, that, and that, that, that's, yes, I agree. It's going to be shocking.
2: So, so there's a second half of the question, if you want to make yes. a guess at that. How does that compare to the 50 states? Yes.
6: Yes. So we know where the story's going. Let's, let's be specific. I'm going to guess that uh, D.C. pays more in federal taxes than uh, at least half the American states.
2: That is very, very close.
6: Anita, why don't you tell us a little bit more about
4: the massive amount of tax that D.C. pays to, uh, to the federal government. And moreover, I gather you want to do something about it.
2: Yes, yes. So D.C. pays $26 billion to the IRS.
4: Billion. I a should billion. say, for the record, Ramin's guess was 5 or $6. I thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
2: And as our distinguished panel guest, that is more than 22 states. And despite this significant contribution, despite the fact that we serve in the military, 681,000 people who live in D.C. have no representation in Congress. We don't have a... Congressperson, we don't have any senators. And that opens the door for the federal government to meddle in our budget and meddle in our uh, policies. And um, really, there's a pathway to stop that from happening, and that's statehood. And so we're really proud that as the D.C. Council, they passed a constitution for D.C. to become a state, and we also have uh, two pieces of legislation in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, thanks to Delegate Norton and thanks to Senator Carper, that provide that pathway towards statehood. And uh, our hope is that uh, very soon we'll be able to move those bills out of Congress, we'll be able to have a pathway to have the Constitution uh, created and a state to be in place, and that'll allow us to have all of the full authority over our laws and the full authority over our budgets and to have representation so that when it's time for everyone to say, Call your congressperson about something, we have someone to call.
8: Yeah.
6: So just a question from from the other side of the Atlantic. As you may know, my country just voted to leave a big union of states. And, you know, we may be looking to join another union. And so <laughs> would you accept an application from the UK? <laughs> and there's a, there's a bonus because we've we got a head of state. She's really cool. You know, you might, you know, just <laughs> in case you want to replace yours, just saying...
2: Honestly, if that will get us statehood, yes. <laughs>
8: I'm all for uh, D.C. becoming a state. What bothers me is uh, the fact that we then have 51 states, and that, to me, is uh, unacceptable. I think 50 is <laughs> uh, a really nice number. We got songs with it that rhyme. Uh, I think the real conversation, though, is which state to yeah. eliminate. One, right. one in, one out. Yeah. <laughs> we got to keep it at 50, guys. That's it. D.C. in, Jersey out.
4: Femi, okay, D.C., the wannabe state, what say you?
9: Anita, you inspired me. When D.C., playing to the crowd here, becomes a state, the possible name could be New Columbia. There are way juicier names that D.C. has had in the past, than New Columbia. When Charles Dickens visited back in 1842, he called it a city of magnificent intentions. (laughs) And political pundits have often called D.C. Hollywood... For ugly people.
4: <laughs> Anita Kozart, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. And would you please welcome the final contestant of the evening, Kirsten Brown. Hi, Kristen, where are you from? What do you do?
1: I am originally from Alabama, and I am an assistant professor at George Washington University Medical School, where I teach gross anatomy and neuroanatomy. Wow. uh...
4: (laughs) All right, Kristen, tell us something we don't know, please, about wannabes.
1: Okay. So, very recently, within the last couple months, researchers have suggested or proposed the addition of a new organ in the human body. Where has this mysterious structure been hiding? And why have we just now found it?
8: There's so many openings here. I can't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No.
8: Sounds like the lamest dirty talk of all time. It's like. I was a
4: bit confused. You said something about uh, that researchers have proposed the
6: addition of. of a
1: new organ.
6: But you're making air quotes, we should say. I am making air quotes. So this is like a, a, an upgrade, like something that wasn't an organ. It's like Pluto was demoted from being a planet, and this structure is like, well, we weren't going to call your knee an organ, but now your knee's an organ. Oh, right. Yeah. It's oh, like okay.
1: brontosaurus.
6: It hasn't
7: been implanted newly. No. <laughs> but it didn't do anything before.
1: It did stuff to before.
7: And we've all got them.
1: Everybody has one. An appendix. Your appendix? No, your appendix is still classified within there.
4: Is the appendix an organ? What is an organ?
1: That is, that is a great question.
4: Well, let's back up.
1: Let's back up. Well,
6: define human being, can <laughs> we?
1: <laughs>
6: <laughs> so it's such a double question, I have to say.
1: So there is no standard anatomical definition oh, for an organ. Oh, good job,
6: anatomy professors. <laughs> I,
1: I never that. said we were perfect.
6: So I was interested in the idea of like it's part of the microbiome thing. Mm. Um, so is this organ part of the gut or contained within the gut?
1: Exactly. It is part oh. of the gut. It's part of your abdomen. So the, the structure that we're talking about is an um, organ known as the mesentery. And mesos comes from Greek for middle. Enteric refers to the intestine. And so this structure is a um, kind of double layer of connective tissue with fat. And it also has blood vessels and nerves, which are all <laughs> going to your gut.
8: Like you're describing a beer belly, and you're like, no, Pardon, pardon, it's that's a, a new
1: organ thing. that I have. Well, so- The researchers have advocated that it is a continuous structure, and so when we approach things in anatomy, we usually describe as multiple mesenteries. So, for example, every organ in your gut has its own little mesentery. They are now suggesting that it is a continuous single structure with a common function, the majority of which is to hold all of your organs in place in the abdomen, so things aren't flopping around. It also serves a developmental function because of the way the blood supply goes into the gut, and then your intestines, all parts of your gut tube, actually exit out of the fetus during development, and they rotate, and so it's all held together for this rapid gut growth. And as I said, there's no common definition that we have for an organ, and there's no agreement for the total number of organs in the human body.
8: I I am very intrigued that there's no definition for organ. Like, I feel like we should do that uh, before making D.C. a state.
1: Some of the...
6: Right? Just
1: well, many of... Uh, several of the professional societies that the anatomists belong to are actually working on this as we speak in terms of defining this, and I think it came out of this discussion.
6: Presumably, there's no <laughs> chance that we're, we're going to find, a, like, a proper organ, like a second brain at the base of the spine, like no. dinosaurs have. So this is like a redefinition, right? Right. But, so upgrade. I'm curious, but when was the last time that anatomists, you know, found a thing like... You know, the, the appendix or the, the spleen or the clitoris or whatever, and said, This is when was like the
8: last time one found a clitoris. <laughs> Good question. Good question. Crowd, by show of hands, whom has recently found a clitoris? If we could. Who brought this guy across the pond? Are you kidding me? Let Tim's wife onto the phone, will you, please? So we can.
4: Uh, femi okay, a new-ish organ or a newly classified organ, the mesentery. What can you tell us?
9: Gross anatomy is the study of organs or body parts that are visible to the naked eye. So I thought I would uh, focus on the gross part. (laughs) If we ripped our skin off, our skin would weigh roughly around about 20 pounds And if we spread it all out, it would be about seven square miles. No. Roughly. Really? a lot lot of skin.
4: uh, When we talk about skin as an organ, how far down?
1: It depends upon if it's a a thick skin area, where you're like the palm of your hand or your foot, which is very, very thick, versus thinner areas, like the thinnest area of your
9: skin is around your eye. And the thickest is the bottom of your foot, particularly my foot. (laughs) (laughs) It is possible to actually live without your stomach which is of course another organ Um, and, and in some medical procedures you can have your stomach removed and then your small intestine attached to your esophagus that is possible and one last final organ that I want to share with you is the tongue it is a muscular organ I know what you're thinking who has the longest tongue in the whole world this is how you measure a tongue. There is a longest recorded tongue in history. From here, which is the middle top of your lip, to the tip of your tongue. So from here to the tip, Nicholas Stobo has 3.97 inches worth of tongue. Tim, you're an economist. What does 3.97 inches look like? <laughs> Ooh. I did not
8: see that yeah. coming. Sorry. I did not.
4: I'm going to say it again. I think we should stop now. Kirsten Brown, thank you so much for telling us something we don't know. Can we please give a hand one more time to all our contestants? Great stuff tonight! Fantastic. It is time now for our panelists to vote. The panelists will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites, and the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner, who will join us back on stage later. All right, then, who will it be? Kirsten Brown with Mesentery Mania, we'll call it. Anita Kozart with DC, the wannabe state. Rebecca Ratner with Is One Really the Loneliest Number. Vince Houghton with 007. Jen Golbeck with How to Bust a Botnet. While the votes are being cast, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, why don't you subscribe, spread the word, and give it a nice rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. All right, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants and our winner tonight with her IDK called, Is One Really the Loneliest Number? Rebecca Ratner, congratulations. (laughs) All right, Rebecca, to mark your accomplishment, we'd like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge, (laughs) which is suitable for framing, as you can see. You'll also join us back on stage later to face one of our panelists in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Now, which panelists will you face? That's what we are about to determine after the break when we put our panelists through a TMS IDK lightning round that's coming up right after this. Welcome back. It's time for our panelists, Tim Harford, Carla Hayden, and Ramin Mostafavi to answer a few of our famous lightning round questions, questions that each of them are uniquely qualified to answer. So Tim Harford, economist, author, gentleman, we're going to start with you. In 10 seconds or fewer, please answer the following. You once made a BBC series called Trust Me, I'm an Economist. Why would any of us ever trust any economist?
6: Because we're committed to, to rationality and to the allocation of scarce resources and, you know, what is scarcer in life but, no you know, love. <laughs> uh, you know, I was giving people dating advice based on economic theory, and it, it worked. Tim, you've worked at the World Bank, Shell Oil,
4: and the BBC. Which one had the best cafeteria?
6: <laughs> oh, the, the World Bank has an amazing cafe, just loads of food from all Our over the world. Our text dollars Fantastic. at work, yeah. Yeah, yeah very nice. That's yeah, good.
4: Uh, Tim, you've lived in two great world cities Washington, DC, and London. Which one's better and why? Oh, DC, totally so much. Yeah. yeah. Tim, at age 12, you produced your own Dungeons and Dragons magazine <laughs> called Adventurous
6: Friend. What were you thinking? Role-playing games are just a great way to to meet friends, and some of the best friends I have, I'm still in touch with from from when I was 12 through role-playing games. All all those other bastards from school I I don't see at all, so the the games work.
4: And finally, Tim Harford, we've heard that you have three children. What are their names? And bonus point, which is your favorite child?
6: (laughs) So they are called Stella, Africa, and Herbie. And uh, which is my favorite? It depends what I'm doing. But you know, if it's if it's games, uh, at the moment, Africa is she just kicks my butt at everything.
4: <laughs> I appreciate the honesty. Well done, Tim Harford. <laughs> Dr. Carla Hayden, our 14th Librarian of Congress. Are you ready? No. All right. <laughs> Which member of Congress is the most active user of the Library of Congress, and what does he or she do there? Oh, I can't tell
7: that. Who they're do you all... see a
4: lot? Who do you see a lot?
7: Well, you know, I see a lot of them in our cafeteria. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have a wonderful cafeteria. Yeah.
4: So they just come to eat.
7: They come to eat, but they all, they're the only people in the world that can check out books from the Library of Congress. That's right.
4: Let me ask you this about your collection. What isn't in the Library of Congress that ought to be?
7: What isn't in the Library of Congress that ought to be are some of the things that are in the British Library uh, uh. that are made in America. There are some manuscripts and some things that we've been eyeing. <laughs>
4: Uh, Let me ask you uh, a slightly more delicate question, perhaps. What's in the Library of Congress that perhaps shouldn't be?
7: (laughs) Well, you know, we have um, Sigmund Freud's papers and some of his research materials. They're vials. But those are the types of things that that you might discover.
4: All right. How do you organize your books at home? Dewey Decimal, Alphabetical, or by Spine Color?
7: I have aspirational groupings. And I've decorated with books. I have baskets. I put Hmm. rocks on top. And it's like a garden of unread material.
4: (laughs) Dr. Hayden, a New Yorker profile of you stated that, quote, Hayden is compact with a short hairstyle that expresses contained fun I know so first of all is it true that your haircut expresses contained fun and if so have you ever had a haircut that expressed uncontained fun
7: (laughs) in the late 60s early 70s
4: (laughs) nicely done thank you so much Dr. Hayden On now to our final panelist, the comedian, Ramin Mostafavi. Ramin, we'll start with a, an easy fill in the blank. As an Iranian-American, the last time someone suspected me of being a terrorist was blank.
8: In the green room right before this
4: show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ramin, the single best reason to live in D.C. is blank.
8: Uh, I'd say The entertainment. I think we have a, a very diverse uh, depth of, of entertainment that addresses uh, all sorts of things throughout this country and I think throughout the globe. I think that all the theaters around do some really, really fantastic work.
4: Excellent. Uh, let's say you've got 10 seconds to perform stand-up
8: for President Trump. Go. Uh, do, do I just quote him back to him? Is that, <laughs> is that comedy? Is that a thing? Uh, Ramin,
4: I mean, I'm curious, in your, in your other job, what's the strangest museum exhibit or feature you were ever asked to build?
8: Oh my gosh, uh, yes, and in the museum world, I, I think this is strange, and maybe I'm a jerk for this, but at the, t- at the top of the Washington Monument, I was asked to make tactile maps for the blind. Now that strikes me as strange, because we all know you stand in line for two to three hours. And if I'm your blind friend and you put me in a line for two and a half hours to go to the top of something to feel (laughs) what you are seeing, (laughs) like, I get it, but can we put that map down by the hot dog stand so I can just, and you wait your happy ass in line, you know what I mean? Just, Uh,
4: do you agree that Librarian of Congress Carla Hayden's hair expresses contained fun? 100%. 100 percent. Yeah. And um, which of Tim Harford's children is your favorite? <laughs> It is time now for our live audience to pick one panelist who will go on to face our contestant winner, Rebecca Ratner, in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So who will it be? Tim Harford, Dr. Carla Hayden, or Ramin Mostafavi? Audience, please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen. The audience votes have been tallied and our panelist winner tonight, with 53% of the vote, Mr. Tim Harford. Congratulations. All right, and let's now bring our audience winner, Rebecca Ratner, back on stage for the final round. The final round is very simple. In a moment, we will reveal a topic related to tonight's theme, Wannabes. Rebecca and Tim, you'll each have a moment to come up with an IDK on that topic. No Googling, no audience help, just your own wonderful brains to rely on. What is our final topic Well, perhaps the most extreme act of wannabeism is to literally impersonate someone else, right? Maybe for fun, maybe for profit, maybe for the good of the country. So that is our final topic tonight, impersonation. Use your imagination. Good luck. We'll give you a minute. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit TMSIDK.com to get tickets to upcoming shows or to be a contestant. If you'd like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, please give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by TMSIDK underscore show. All right, Tim and Rebecca,
6: it's time for you to tell us something we don't know about impersonation. Tim Harford, you first. So I... I'm fascinated by uh, the Dutch forger Van Miegeren. Uh He was a frustrated artist, um, very technically very good painter, but people mocked him for his lack of originality, and so he began um, churning out fake uh, paintings. I think he was a particular specialist in Vermeer. Like many forgers, there's this tension, because on the one hand, he wants never to be caught, because then he goes to jail, but on the other hand, he sort of wants to be found out because if he's found out, that demonstrates, A, that he's a brilliant forger who fooled all these people and he gets the credit, Uh, and B, he gets to laugh in the face of, of the art world who turned him down. Wow, don't leave us hanging. Did he get caught then? I think he got caught, and I seem to remember he got off pretty lightly, Van Megren, the Dutch forger, the, the Vermeer impersonator.
4: Very well done, Tim Harford. <laughs> oh. Rebecca Ratner, beat that. Yeah, yeah, so
3: in the 1990s, I was a PhD student at Princeton University, and uh, there was an impersonator in our, in our midst
4: someone who pretended to be a student and wasn't a student? Is that what you mean by that?
3: It was actually hilarious to those of us who were Ph.D. students at that time because for any of you who have been through a Ph.D. program, and I'm guessing it's it's many people here tonight, um, it, it is a pretty grueling, often completely unglamorous sort of job to have for five or six or seven or eight years. And it turned out that there was someone who was impersonating being a Ph.D. student and was hanging out in our dining halls, and I think we all couldn't stop laughing for for days.
4: Because why on earth would you want to put yourself through that? Rebecca Ratner, very well done. (laughs) Well, it is time now for our live audience to pick a winner. Remember the criteria. Was it something you did not know? Was it something that's worth knowing and something that's demonstrably true? Okay, let's hear you first. Make some noise for our panelist, Tim Harford, the Dutch forger. And now for Rebecca Ratner. Rebecca Ratner sounds like you're tonight's winner. Congratulations. Now, Rebecca... Plainly, you deserve a prize of some kind. What's it going to be? Well, do you remember way back at the top of the show when we heard how the Brontosaurus was demoted from official dinosaurdom, but was recently reinstated?
5: And their analysis of all the material, you know, suggests that, you know, Brontosaurus can be differentiated from Apatosaurus, and maybe Brontosaurus is a valid
4: name. Well, now that the Brontosaurus is an official dinosaur again, wouldn't you like to own a piece of one? That's why we got you this beautiful Damascus steel knife with a handle carved from a real live, a real dead Brontosaurus <laughs> bone. Hope you enjoy. And that's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know about wannabes. Thanks so much to our wonderful panelists, Tim Harford, Carla Hayden, Ramin Mostafabi, to our fact checker, Femi Oke, to our awesome contestants, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. I don't know. And next week, For our last episode in season two, we have a very special show. The theme is music, and we'll have our very own house band, Dan Zanes and Friends. Also, a great trio of panelists, David Haydew, Faith Saley, and Danny Goldberg. And as always, awesome contestants.
0: I've been working on the railroad. Fly Me to the Moon and Take Me Out to the ball game are some of the songs I use in my line of work. What Do I Do?
4: Are you the most awesome ballpark organist ever?
3: Are you the most adorable burlesque performer?
4: (laughs) That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen at TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.